All right, I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 11. Uh, So we're doing this series of messages where we look at uh, a whole bunch of stories from the Bible from the beginning to the end and kind of ask, you know, what do these stories tell us about uh, who Jesus is? And so we've done the creation story and the story of uh, humanity's fall into sin, and we did the story of the, uh, the flood and Noah and his ark, and today we are up to Genesis chapter 11. And we start with verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that they were building. And the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Our story today is kind of weird. Um, And it's it's kind of weird because it is hard to understand exactly uh, what is God so worried about in the story. I mean, God takes some pretty drastic measures in response to this construction project. He confuses human language and he scatters people over the face of the earth. But what exactly is God's problem? Last week we looked at the story of the flood. And uh, with the flood, the problem was laid out pretty clearly. Uh, There's that just deadly line in uh, chapter 6, verse 5, where it says that every inclination of the thoughts of humans were only evil all the time. Okay, and, then, and we saw evidence of that, right? So in chapter 4 of Genesis, we saw Adam and Eve's son, Cain, kill his brother Abel. Later we see uh, this guy Lamech. He kills a guy. He brags that he's way more violent than Cain ever was. Like in the flood story, we kind of saw evidence. We saw how how bad things were. But the problems in Genesis 11 seem much less bad. Uh, In fact, doesn't it seem a little bit like the problems in Genesis 11 might not be problems at all. I mean, think about it. What does Genesis 11 show us of humanity? So, humanity is shown as a bunch of people getting along great. Um, They're not killing each other. They're working together. They're speaking the same language. They're building this cool tower. They are explicitly trying to stay together. This is not like humanity bent on destruction. This is like humanity bent on getting along, right? And yet God comes down and 
breaks it all up. So what's the deal? What's God's problem here? Well, I want to look at three, like kind of like the three main options that like Bible scholars put forward for what the problem might be in this section. So, uh, and they all kind of have to do with verse 4. So the, the first is this business of making a name for themselves. You see that in verse 4? So they're building this tower, this city, uh, but we're told that the reason they're doing it is to make a name for themselves. Uh, this is like, I wonder if this is like the Bronze Age equivalent of the, the big donor who demands his name be put on the wing of the new hospital or the kids aren't going to get the money like for the hospital, right? And, and of course, there's nothing wrong with building wings on children's hospitals, right? But requiring that your name be on it, it kind of feels yuck to us, right? And of course, we all do this. I mean, well, we don't, we don't all finance hospital wings, but uh, we all like to get credit when we do good things, right? It feels good to get caught doing a good deed, right? Even if you don't have a million dollars, I think our, our motivations when we do good are often pretty mixed. Sometimes we just want people to think, wow, Sean's a pretty great guy. Are you doing this because it's worth doing, or are you doing it because you want people to notice you? Right? Because we know, we know from the rest of the Bible that there's nothing inherently wrong with building a city or building a tower. Um, you know, in fact, you might remember the whole Bible ends. Where does the whole Bible end? It ends in a city that God is building, right? I mean, uh, clearly, God is not against cities. So the problem must be not what they're doing. The problem must be why they're doing it. And so a lot of people say, like, the problem in our story today is their motivation. They're, they're trying to make a name for themselves, and it's just kind of another expression of human pride. And so maybe the issue in Genesis 11 is their pride. Second option that you might see in this story is to see that it's a story about bad religion. Okay, kind of a self-help religion. So the, the people say in verse 4, that they want to build a tower that reaches to heaven. That's religious language, right? Um, most scholars think that what they're talking about is like a ziggurat. It's, it's like this ancient kind of tower. Uh, they found them all over when they've excavated in the, Midi, in, in the Near East. Um, these tall towers that were basically pagan temples. Okay, And the idea behind these temples is that if we kind of build this tower, we can get close to God. Okay, so it's sort of like, God, like you're up there in heaven, and we're like down here on earth. We're going to meet you halfway. The assumption was, like if we build this tower, if we meet God halfway, He should meet us halfway. And it's this very like transactional view of God. Like, I'm going to do something for God, and then God has to do something for me. But it's actually a little more subtle than that. Because it's not like the blatant, like, I'm just going to go save myself, right? So I'm going to get myself to heaven. Most of us, I think, have enough sense to know that we at least need God's help to be saved. And we need a hand from Him in this life. Uh, we're not getting to heaven on our own strength. Most of us are savvy enough to know that. But what's sneaky about the tower mentality is, well, you're only going halfway. It's not like you're pretending like you're doing it all on your own. Right? You're like, I know I'm not perfect, but 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not nothing either. I mean, check out the tower. Like, I've made, I've made a, a good faith effort. I'm doing something. I'm, I'm halfway there. It's a very seductive way for religious people to think, right? We approach God like this all the time. We think, I'm a pretty good person, right? You can always at least find somebody who's worse, right? So I'm a pretty good person. I'm at least better than that guy. I'm, I'm at least like halfway there, right? We think, well, sure, like God's going to have to do something to save me. Like he's going to have to intervene, but I don't think he's going to have to work that hard to save me, right? Like I'm, I'm pretty good, right? I mean, the analogy might be we feel like our sin has like made us a little spiritually sick. And, and God is like the doctor, and so we're all, we're all a little like under the weather, and we just need like a spiritual boost from God. But of course, that's not how the Bible describes our situation at all, is it? Anyone know what Ephesians 2 says about this? It's in the New Testament. Does it say, as for you, you were not doing great in your sin? No. What does it say? It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgression and sin. Dead, not sick. Not like under the weather. Not almost there. Not halfway. Not doing pretty good. Dead. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in sin. Right? The tower is this delusion, and it's a very popular one. Like, but if we're getting to heaven at all, it will not be because we've gotten ourselves halfway to God. It'll be because God has gotten Himself all the way to us. Right? That's what the Bible says. We have a word for it. We just call it grace. Right? Whenever you hear people talk about grace, that's what they're talking about. And you will never really understand the, the God of the Bible if you are in like this self-help mode related to Him. Right? So if all you're looking for is like a little bit of spiritual help, a little wisdom would be nice, a little inspiration would be helpful. Like I just need a little boost. Like If that's what you're looking for, like the real God will be very confusing for you. Because the, the real God is not like out there handing out spiritual aspirin to like take the edge off like the real god is raising rotting corpses to life right that's what the real god does so that's the second option maybe maybe genesis 11 is a critique of self-help religion and you know i think these two options are pretty good i think either of them would probably be good enough reason for God to break up the, the Babel party, right? I mean, especially, by the way, especially if you add technology to the mix. A lot of people ask about this. So they got this new technology, the brick, right? Cutting edge kind of stuff. You, imagine how much this changes things, right? To have the brick. Um, and what seems to be God's concern in verse 6 is related to the technology, right? That, that technology could take these bad impulses, that are in you know, the inclinations of every human heart, um, and like accelerate them. Um, and by the way, if you just do like a quick survey of history, it, it bears this out, right? So the last hundred years of human history have seen by far uh, the most technological advances in history, and they've also seen the most blood, death, and genocide. Right? 
I, I think God is justified in his concern that, that human pride or self-help religion or whatever else could blow up out of, out of control. But I actually think that neither of those are the main reason this text has in mind for why God did what he did. In fact, I'm pretty sure that even if, even if there weren't any pride issues in our passage today, and even if there weren't any like self-help religion issues in our passage today, even if neither of those reasons existed, I want to suggest that God still would have come down and still would have broken things up. So why? I mean, if you take away the pride issues and you take away the self-help religion issues, what have you got left? You got a bunch of nice people. People that get along. People who like each other. People who like liking each other. People who are not fighting. People who are not angry. People who work together. So what, what's left? Why break up something so nice? And I think the reason God breaks up this nice gathering can actually be found on page 1 of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Okay, So God has just created human beings. And the, the very first instructions that God gives to human beings are these. He says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. Okay, Fill the earth. It's, it's one of those instructions I don't think we think a lot about. Um, but then in Genesis 9, verse 1, so after the flood that we talked about last week when God kind of does this new creation kind of thing, um, God is restarting and He says it again. Exactly the same way. Chapter 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Isn't that interesting? God's design for humanity was not for us all to stick together in one place. Okay? It was not for us to get along and stay comfortable right here, kumbaya. God's design for humanity was that we would get out there. That we would not stay, but that we would go. We would fill the earth. And so even if nothing else was wrong, God still would have had to break up the city because it was disobeying God's first command, his command to not just sit there, but to go. And here's where I think things start to get interesting for us at Creston. Okay? Because you know what? I like this church. Um, this church is a nice place. You all are nice people. Uh, people here get along. We aren't having any big fights. We aren't all like angry with each other. We like each other. But I wonder if God still might want to shake us up a bit. I think sometimes we at Creston Church, we might just really like how much we like each other. <laughs> I mean, I like you guys, and I think you mostly like me. And I like liking you. It's, it's nice to get along. I mean, it's a lot better than the alternative. Um, but is it possible that we might like liking each other so much that we lose sight of the fact that God didn't put us here just so that we'd all like each other. God put us here to get us out there. And so it's Pentecost today. Often when we think about Pentecost, we make a connection to Genesis 11, right? 
because a big part of the Pentecost story has to do with language. So um, in Acts chapter 2, that's the Pentecost story in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit comes down. There's this crowd that's gathered from all over the world. And this guy Peter gets up and he starts preaching about Jesus. And even though everybody in the audience speaks and hears all these different languages, miraculously, during that sermon, they all hear the sermon in their own language. And so we often say that Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. Right? It's kind of the undoing of Genesis 11. But if that's the only way we understand Pentecost and Babel, I fear we have missed something critically important about both stories. So you can turn to Acts chapter 1 in your Bible. I don't have the page number, but it's, it's I don't know, maybe three-quarters of the way through your Bible. Acts chapter 1. Um, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and He's told His disciples who've been following Him around, He tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the Pentecost gift God had promised, uh, the, the Holy Spirit, which we talk about Pentecost, right? And to prepare them for this gift, Jesus explains what will happen when the Holy Spirit comes. And it's verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's the city where they were, and in all Judea, that's the region where they were, and Samaria, that's the region next door, and, he says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. In other words, God's saying, when my spirit shows up here, it'll be time for you to get out there. Right? We often think about, like, well, the Holy Spirit coming down and isn't that nice when the Holy Spirit comes? You know, it helps us all get along and, and love each other and be at peace with each other. And that's all stuff the Spirit does. But that's not the first thing Jesus says we should expect of the Spirit. He says the first thing we should expect when the Holy Spirit shows up here is that we will get sent out there. That we will be scattered. And it's just what happened after that Pentecost day in the Bible. So there's this famous scene after the big like multilingual Pentecost sermon uh, where all these people are coming to faith and they're all getting along great. Um, they, they call it the, the Acts 2 church. Anybody here ever heard of the Acts 2 church, right? Like this incredible unity, total sharing. They're getting along awesome. But then almost immediately, we read about them scattering. Brand new Christians in huge numbers started leaving the safety and the comfort of that amazing kind of idyllic church, and they started going out. They started scattering into the world. And so in some cases, we read about people who... I mean, all they really did was they, they kind of crossed the street in Jerusalem and, and they shared their faith with, with neighbors or coworkers or, or, or people in their sort of sphere of influence. In some cases, they crossed the known world to the ends of the earth. They, they practically and they literally gave up their lives to go. See, I don't think Pentecost is necessarily an undoing of Genesis 11. I think in some ways it is a deepening of Genesis 11. God wants us to get out there. Like wherever God's people get a little too comfortable being comfortable with each other, do not be surprised if God does something to break you up. Which sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? Right? We, 
we, we like stability. We like things to be predictable and, and, and to know what's coming up. Like the, the idea of breaking up and scattering this community, that, that sounds scary. We think of that as a problem. God thinks of it as His plan from page one. God wants us not just to gather, He wants us to go. And so the question is, what does that mean for you and me? Um, and, and to start, I think it means we've got to pray and we've got to expect. Okay. Um, so we've got to ask God for eyes to see and ears to hear where He wants us to go. He's trying to get through to us. We just don't do much time listening, right? Where does He want us to go? Who does He want us to serve? We actually have to ask God that question in prayer, like on a regular basis. So in the last year, I've begun praying for like specific people to share my faith with. These are like friends or neighbors. Um, and you want to know the incredible thing? Before I started praying for these people to share my faith with, I just never seemed to have any opportunities to share my faith with people. It's like it just never came up. And guess what happened once I started praying? I started seeing like all these natural opportunities just like fall in my lap. And not just with these friends and neighbors I was praying for. Like, ask God for eyes to see and ears to hear. He'll answer that prayer. Expect that when you leave this place, you're not just leaving, God is sending you somewhere to someone. You know, a few years ago, a member of our church felt a call to find out, uh, she said, what it means to be a radical Christian. Okay. And, and so she started like loaning her car out more and more to people or like offering people a place to stay like if they needed it. And she started finding like all these opportunities to serve all over the place. And I didn't have the heart to tell her, um, but that, that's, not, that's not being a radical Christian. That's just what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. Which, by the way, He does every time we gather here. right? When the Holy Spirit shows up, you don't stay comfortable and cozy. You get sent. You go. And this church has been doing this, by the way, even to the ends of the earth for years. So just in my time, I, was try- I, I tried to come up with a list this morning. Um, Kenzie Goins to Papua. Uh, Liz Vincent to Bolivia. Genevin Bruggen to Panama, Micah Sherman to Costa Rica, Andrew and Ruth, we prayed for them today, to Nicaragua. Now Leah Hookstra going to Jordan. And I'm sure I'm missing people. I'm not sure that there's much that makes me prouder of this church than all the people who've left it. And even right here in this city, right? Uh, in, this, in this region, we've got a lot of radical Christians here. They're not, they're not radical Christians. You just you have the Holy Spirit, right? And, and, and you, are, you are stepping out, maybe not across the globe, but you're stepping out of comfort zones. And you are following God's call to serve more deeply or more inter- intentionally or more sacrificially in like your workplaces or your schools or neighborhoods or families or wherever, right? See, if your faith just comforts you but doesn't also send you you're missing something. All right, I want to end with this. Uh, because this is something I've heard from a lot of the people who've gone out from here. It's something that they found to be true. I found it to be true. And it's something that I try to remind you of every week. So right every week, the Holy Spirit shows up here. Right, He's here right now. 
Every week I remind you that he's here. Right? The Spirit of God is here right now. But what else do I do? At the end, I say, uh, you need to know that when you leave this place, you do not go alone. You go with God's Spirit. That's the gift of Pentecost. Not just a, a happy togetherness and peace because the Spirit's here, but an equipping, uh, a getting ready, a calling, a sending, a power. Go and make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you always to the ends of the age. And He is. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we ask that You would indeed open our eyes.